When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Sassoons were one of the great merchant families of the 19th century, alongside such names as the Jardines, the Mathesons, and the Swires. They dominated the India-China opium trade through the David Sassoon and Edie Sassoon companies. They became Indian tycoons, English aristocracy, Hong Kong board directors, and Shanghai real estate moguls. Yet unlike, say, the Kaduris or the Swires, the Sassoon companies no longer exist today. Professor Joseph Sassoon, in his latest book, The Sassoons, The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire, helps to answer that question. From the Sassoons start fleeing Baghdad for the city of Bombay, through to Victor Sassoon's investments in Shanghai before the Second World War. Joseph Sassoon is a professor of history and political economy and director of the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University. He is also a senior associate member at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a trustee of the Bodleian Library. His previous books include the prize-winning Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath Party inside an authoritarian regime, The Iraqi Refugees, The New Crisis in the Middle East, and Anatomy of Authoritarianism in the Arab Republics. Today, Joseph and I talk about the Sassoon family, from David, its patriarch, through to Victor Sassoon, Shanghai real estate mogul. And we also talk about the Sassoons as a business. How did this great global trading house decline? And are there lessons for the businesses of today? So, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, perhaps it's best to start at the beginning, um, which is the Sassoons are a family in uh, Baghdad. And I guess due to political shenanigans in Baghdad, they flee and they move to to Bombay. What drives the Sassoon family uh, to Bombay in the first place? Thank you, first of all, for having me. It's it's really interesting because if you think about it, Bombay was not a a natural uh, conclusion for uh, that decision. A lot of merchant families from Baghdad, irrelevant of their religion, moved either to the Gulf or to Persia, Iran today, um, for different reasons. And remember, we're talking about 1830, so borders are open and you just moved from one place to another. I think that what really attracted David Sassoon at the time to head to Bombay is the notion that religion uh, or sect do not play any role, that it's all about trading and it is acceptable to be a trader irrelevant of your ethnicity or religion. And he proved to be right in the long run. Um, Bombay proved to be a very good and, and welcoming home for him and his family. So the growth of the of the Sassoon company, you know, David 
David Sassoon and Co. It's closely tied to the opium trade. Um, you know, I think in, I think in most people's kind of popular exception of history, the opium trade is really important for the opium wars, and the people kind of forget it exists um, for the latter half of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, so, like, how did you know after the opium wars? Uh, you know, how did opium continue to develop as a trade uh, throughout the this almost a century after the opium wars? And how were the Sassoons all tied up in this in the trade of this of this drug? So, as you correctly mentioned, the opium has been used in both India and China for thousands of years. And uh, East India Company began 200 years before the Sassoon arrived in India to have the monopoly until really the 1850s of exporting opium and did not allow any other traders, be it Indian or European, to engage in that trade. That began to change uh, first because of the opium war. It made it legal. Uh, But to the uh, dissolving of the East India Company in 1858, which really opened the markets for merchant families, be it Indian like the Sassoons or foreigners like Jardine Matheson. When the Sassoons started trading first textiles, then uh, rice and then wheat and tea, um, opium was one other commodity. They were very, very small in the beginning. I mean, if you look at the data um, and record trade records from the 1840s, they're really barely nowhere. Um, even after the Opium War. The change begins really in the 1850s, and as it became legal commodity, um, they began to trade it, again, at a very small scale. But the strategy of the Sassoons, whether it's in cotton, whether it's in silk, whether it's in tea, is brick-by-brick strategy. There was never a one trade or one event that made the Sassoon very wealthy and build a huge dynasty. It really was step after step. And that is, from a business point of view, what is really remarkable about the success of the family. As time went by, they were um, paying more to the uh peasants in India, and you have to remember also when we talk about the opium, there was about a million peasants in India planting opium. That's households. So if you're talking in general, we're talking about seven, eight million Indians um, out of population of 300 million maybe at the time that were dependent on, on this commodity. Um, they kept building on. Um, they, uh, David Sassoon sent his second son, Elias, to China at a very early stage in the 1850s to explore the possibility of trading with China, not just opium, but as a market for other commodities to export and import. And um, thus began the connection. I think as time went by, they gained more and more out of the market share as they discounted, they were more 
uh, willing to pay to the peasants and to the agents. And they kept getting market shares so that by the 1870s, they really did have a big chunk. We do not have exact statistics. Some people claim that it's up to 70%. I doubt that number, but it probably was in the 40-50% of the overall trade in the 1870s. And that continued, as you correctly pointed out, until World War I. One last item on this. Um, Whenever the exports from India decline, the local production in China more than compensated. So if it went down by 7% in one year, local production in China, let's say, went by 10%. And actually, if you look at the data, by World War I, there were no more exports, yet the overall consumption and production of uh, opium in China was the same as 30 or 40 years before. I want to talk about the family dynamics of the Sassoon family, um, especially I think the, the first and second generation. Um, you have David Sassoon who launches the company. Um, he has, I believe, four sons. Uh, Abdullah, who becomes Albert, stays in Bombay. Elias goes to Shanghai. Uh, I forget the name of the third son, the one that goes to London. And then there's Suleiman in, in Hong Kong. And I admit in reading the book, I ended up getting a soft spot for Suleiman, maybe because he's based in Hong Kong, maybe because he keeps on getting badgering letters from all of his brothers and his father about the company. Um, but eventually, you know, the these dynamics between these between these four sons does lead to a split in the Sassoon company, where you have um, Abdullah later becomes Albert, keeping um, David Sassoon and Co., and then Elias spinning off, splitting off, and creating his more, I guess, China-focused E.D. Sassoon and company. Right. There were more, uh, far more than four sons, because remember, he has two from his first wife, and uh, let's see, about six from his second wife. There is only one brother who is not involved in the business, who's actually a Suleiman's twin. Um, the others are all involved. There is uh, Abraham Shalom, who becomes Arthur. There is Reuben. There is Frederick. There is S.D., who is the first one to go um, to to uh, London. I think it's really interesting. I, I think that one of the, in retrospect, and of course, one of the issues of these archives, that you really don't get... Um, a sense of the psychology, what went through his head. Uh, You know, they didn't keep diaries. They just were too busy with the correspondence. We do not know the exact relationship that he had with his two sons. What is very clear, he was very close to Abdullah, Albert, because Albert was always in Bombay. Meanwhile, the second son, Elias, was mostly in China, first in Hong Kong, then in Shanghai. And so the decision to give Abdullah the total reign of the family, in my judgment, was one of the mistakes of uh, that David has committed. He really never saw the fact that 
um, you know, you can't just keep going on uh, giving it to your eldest son. It's just not gonna, it's not going to work. And, and to me, that was a big mistake and ended up in, in the discord between the two eldest brothers because Elias said, I am the one who went to China. I am the one who started the business and, and, and struggled for five years on my own. I brought more profits. I deserve 50%. And you were right also about your connection to Suleiman. He was the most hardworking of the brothers. And in a sense, Suleiman was really the only one who kind in inverted commas was not corrupted or corroded by the money as the other brothers who all went to London witnessed what it meant to be in high life and, and, and living the life of aristocracy. Suleiman was continued really more closely the tradition of his father than anyone else probably. You know, sticking on the topic of succession planning, I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the chronology a little bit. Um, but Suleiman eventually takes over the Asia business for David Sassoon Company. He then passes away. And at least for a short time, leadership is handed over to his wife, um, Flora Sassoon, or I guess at the time she was she was Farha Sassoon. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because like, he, he, I don't think you get many examples of of women business leaders at that time. Um, she comes in with a lot of ideas on how to change up the management of the company, but is ultimately forced out. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about um, Flora Sassoon and her place in the company's history. Yeah, I mean, her place is not just really in the company's history. Her place is in the business history in the sense that she was the only woman who was a CEO of a global trading company. There were a lot of matriarchs around the world, but they were not running a business on a day-to-day -day and a large business and a global business. Um, four years before, she was in a way very revolutionary, if you think about it. Um, in, in Already in the early 1890s, she sees that her husband, Suleiman, is under tremendous pressure. His health is deteriorating. He's constantly tired. He doesn't take any breaks or vacation. And she says to him, I am going to come with you to the office three times a week and sit in the office and learn the business. Now, this was a revolution at the time because women did not go to offices definitely not did not sit with merchant and listen and the whole community mercantile community in india was really dazzled by this what do you do as an indian merchant or an arab merchant who's going there you're shaking hands with suleiman after agreeing a deal what do you do with the wife sitting and yet she kept going on with this. She um, was listening. She was memorizing everything. And she really had an incredible, incredible uh, photographic memory. 
And sure enough, when he died four years later, she said, I'm ready. Now, the family did not appoint her, and that has to be understood. Abdullah, who was very elderly at the time, Sir Albert by then in, in, in England, said to his brothers, okay, any one of you are willing to pack and go to Bombay or, or, or Shanghai and run the business? Well, guess what? No one wanted to leave the good life. And so there is a limbo and business in Asia was critical because it's two hubs, Bombay and Shanghai, out of three hubs. And so the only hand that was raised and volunteered to do the business was Flora Sassoon, Farha Sassoon at the time. And that was really incredible. And you correctly pointed out tremendous innovation, tremendous success. But the, um, the, the, the family's response was despicable, to be honest. Uh, they refused to accept her success. They refused to accept her innovations. You know, a fundamental problem for them, and you see it in their correspondence between them, how can a widow of and a mother of three children run a global business? Instead of saying the opposite, Wow, what an amazing woman who's a widow and taking care of her ch three children at the same time running global business. They could not absorb it. They could not accept it. And as you pointed out, from the beginning, they began conspiring against her. And six years later, they were successful in, in pushing her out. So you, you, you mentioned... Sir Albert, who I believe was Abdullah, um, before moving to London. And the, so, but there's this big shift in the Sassoon family in moving to London, I guess, is because the way they thought the action was. And then they spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to break into um, the upper classes or the aristocracy. Um, I guess, what what drove this, this, I guess, this this desire to kind of join English high society? And how successful was it? I think part of it is really kind psychological. As a refugee family, they wanted first to be accepted in India and then to England, Britain. And, you know, you have also to put it in context as a refugee family, immigrant family, that Britain was the only superpower in the world at the time, the only real huge empire with... Uh, a global influences. So it was very natural to, to, to identify with that power in order to protect you as an immigrant family. Um, I think they were successful in India and they were successful in, uh, in England. The relationship with the English aristocracy and the upper class and royalty began actually in Bombay when they first time they hosted the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales, the son of Queen Victoria, becomes really the bridge for them. The relationship continues when the sons of David and the brothers of Albert uh, arrive in London, they all... Uh, continue to develop the relationship. 
Uh, the the atmosphere in Eng- Britain it's very interesting. On one hand, there was anti-Semitism, but on the other hand, there were a lot of different ideologies. The free trade and merchants were locked up. On the other hand, there was the Manchester School, which advocated uh, for talent to be accepted and into the country irrelevant of their origin. The Sassoons also were seen coming from the upper class, first in Iraq, in Baghdad at the time, and then what was known uh, in, in Bombay as one of the merchant princes. So they saw them kind almost equal, and hence began this romance. And of course, the longer time went by, the more absorbed they were in English culture, in English heritage, to the extent that by the fourth generation, they refused to admit or tell their children what their origins were, what their religion was, because they wanted to be so English that nothing else they uh, should should uh, change that picture or disturb it. You know, you you mentioned the anti-Semitism, um, and there were definitely points in this book where um, the fact that the Sassoons were Jewish were brought up by um, people who want to drag them down. I think people who were warning against, um, uh, I guess, their connections with the royal family, how this was dangerous. Could you? I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about the anti-Semitism of the time. Um, and how that was, people tried to use that against the Sassoons. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because they faced less anti-Semitism as the, than the Rothschilds, for example, for a number of reasons. One, this concept of Jews being money lenders did not apply to them because they were never in the business of money lending. They were never in as bankers, they invested in banks, whether in India or China or Persia, but they did not own a bank and they did not lend money. To what I just said before, that they were seen already as upper class and not nouveau riche who started from nothing and became powerful and rich, which British aristocracy looked down on. And third, the again, this atmosphere that was prevailing in England that actually allowed for families like the Sassoons to be accepted. And the Prince of Wales actually was kind of the head of this movement. You know, for example, his mother did not approve of this relationship. The mother actually, the Queen Victoria, blocked having any Jew as as a lord or any other title for many years just because of the belief that Jews should not receive that. That, of course, with time changed. Um, but there was definitely also, you know, a lot of push for liberalism and, and, and the Sassoons benefited from it. It's interesting. More, there was a lot of criticism also of the Prince of Wales than them directly. And the criticism against him was more also, why are you spending time with these foreigners? 
So there is the issue of being foreigners and then being Jews. The two, you, you know, didn't augur well for the prince. But the relationship, to his credit, continued. And even after he became king, that relationship continued. So I want to jump back to uh, the other side of the world again, um, back to Shanghai in China. You know, I, I was I was recently in Shanghai. I was in Shanghai last week from when Rukun's interview. Um, I was able to walk along the Bund and, and see a lot of the buildings there, um, which is a good connection to your book and the role played by Victor Sassoon, um, I guess, at that point, part of the uh, E.D. Sassoon branch of the family, um, and all of his investments in in Shanghai real estate. Uh, I guess why did I, I guess what drove Victor to kind of be so involved in Shanghai? What were some of the things that he was able to build? So, in, in nationalism in India was increasing in the nineteen twenties. Um, he also was one of those who saw communism in every corner and was convinced that all the labor strikes in India were kind of motivated or pushed by the communists, a little bit of more than a little bit of an exaggeration, uh, because labor conditions were very bad. And, and so there were strikes. The communists were strong in India in the 1920s, but they definitely were not the most active and, and potent political power. But Victor saw them as such. He also began to hear that China is very open, that Shanghai is going to be the place in the world. And to a certain extent, it did became uh, it did become the the, the Paris of, of Asia. Um, and so in 1926, he basically announced to the annoyance of the Indians and to the shock of the financial world that he is packing and taking a lot of the money with him to Shanghai. And here some numbers would be interesting. So in 1926, he took with him 80 million U.S. dollars, not of today, but of 1926. This is a huge, huge amount of money. Remember, by then there were no more commodity trading. Opium has died. Cotton trade as such died. There were cotton mills, but not commodity trading. And so he shifted the whole focus to real estate. As you pointed out, he built this cafe building on the Bund. It was the first, what is supposed to be a skyscraper today, is of course just a normal building of 20 floors. Um, and then continued to build. And at the end, by the 1940s, he owned 14 large buildings. He actually introduced interesting concept. He felt that Shanghai is such a dynamic city that a lot of people are coming for long periods. They don't want to stay in a hotel, but they don't have any other alternatives. He came for the first instance of 
service apartment. So you're moving to Shanghai from somewhere for six months, nine months. That's the place you would rent. Uh, and a lot of other ideas around servicing each other, kind of very vertical. To give you another uh, a, a notion, so in 1926, he invested almost $80 million in this real estate. In 1936-37, assets in Shanghai tripled in one decade. I mean, it is really remarkable because people started seeing Shanghai as the hub in the world. I mean, if you look at his diaries and who visited Shanghai, the question was who didn't visit Shanghai? Because if you're anyone in any area, forget just business, in music, in acting, every famous actor or actress from Hollywood went to Shanghai. Um, there were really two places that people around the world wanted to go, Paris and Shanghai. And he loved that. He loved that high life. He loved that uh, hobnobbing with all these famous people. And in 1936, Forbes magazine put him as the sixth wealthiest man. So... Until then, his bet on Shanghai, you could say, worked ten out of ten. Of course, it doesn't. It doesn't last, you know, because <laughs> no, it doesn't last. That's why I said until nineteen thirty-six. You know, um, th and this is where arrogance come into it. He became so, you know, full of himself. Uh, convinced that he is, you know, a world personality. And I guess to a certain extent, you know, egos get built when, you know, Charlie Chaplin comes to there, they want to spend time with you or, or Marlene Dietrich. Um, you know, you're, you really are with the who is who in all spheres, business, politics, art, entertainment. He could not see further than that. He could not see that there were real changes taking place in China. And the first sign, obviously, of trouble was, um, which has nothing to do with the Chinese or uh, uh, Victor, was the invasion of Shanghai by the Japanese. And that should have raised alarm bells um, that... It's not as stable as he thought, that there are problems in, in, in the air. He left Shanghai having tried for almost a year to play the mediator between the Japanese and the British. He also reached all the wrong conclusions. He decided when, uh, in 1939, World War II began, that the Japanese will never enter World War II, will never, ever attack the United States. All this, of course, proved utterly wrong. Um, and things started deteriorating. I also write about it that his close connection with Chiang Kai-shek in China really did not help in the sense that he was getting 
the wrong views about uh, the 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 uncertainty, instability in China, particularly in uh, villages and small towns, and did not under the same way did not understand the rise of nationalism in uh, India, did not understand how the Chinese people really felt about a corrupt system um, that prevailed uh, versus the communists, which were gaining a lot of influence and power. So I want to tackle this next question, um, maybe less from the history standpoint and more from the uh you can say business case study standpoint. You know, the 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 Sas, both Sassoon companies eventually kind of uh, decline into they basically decline away. Um, both the David Sassoon and Ed Sassoon branches. Um, there are obviously, I think, lessons there for uh, I guess big successful family businesses how they're able to keep the company going through successive generations. Um, there are lessons there for big global commodity traders. Um, you know what? What are the kinds of lessons that the uh, that that the Sassoon company, as a business, uh, potentially presents to similar types of businesses uh, today? Well, I mean, you know, historically, first of all, he didn't create a life trust to prevent the division and subdivision of wealth. Um, second of all, um, you know. The, the lessons that anyone can learn, whether it's in 1850 or uh, 2022, at what point do you start diversifying? If you have, take any big, large corporations today, um, at what point do you start moving from your core business to anticipate decline? The Sassoons refused to acknowledge that the two main commodities, opium and textile, are going to seize or decline in the long run. It's interesting. They were approached by other families that they worked with in India, like the Tatas, who told them, let's invest in heavy industry. There is an industrial revolution going on in the West. Industry, 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 let's drop commodity trading. They didn't want to do that. They paid a heavy price. So diversification for any business, when do you diversify and to buy how much? That is always going to be a tough question. A third aspect is really this intergenerational wealth. You know, people always say, oh, how come this one is successful and how come that one, what is the formula? There is really no formula. And and the reason for that is when you are beginning as a first generation to build a business, you are working very, very hard. You must be incredibly imaginative and capable of taking the risk. Does that mean your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to continue that tradition? Absolutely not. And that has not changed whether it's 1730, 1830, or 2030. It's not going to change because one successful generation doesn't mean that the second generation either going to be interested in the business 
or talented for the business. And then this issue of wealth, how much do you give them and how much not to give them? Um, How do you keep that hunger, the drive to success that they had and a lot of entrepreneurs around the world today have, but that doesn't mean they're children or grandchildren are going to be able to continue uh, uh, the tradition. And one last thing, in any private business when do, or family business, when do you bring outsiders who are experts? How much power do you give them? And what is the balance? Again, it's something that really has changed, has not changed throughout generations. So I think for my last question, you know, I, I was thinking about the Sesame Company and kind of thinking about other big companies that um, kind of grew alongside the British Empire in this part of the world, thinking about companies like Jardine Matheson, like Swire, like the Kaduri family. Um, and, you know, it, all of those companies have survived um, in to varying degrees of of of. I guess the the reach that they had during the height of their powers, um, but they've all kind of stuck around. Even as the British Empire declined, the Sassoon Company did not. Um, but I guess you know I, I want to think about like all of these companies, the Sassoons and and these other um, companies that grew alongside the British Empire. What do I guess? How do these companies? What do they tell us about the I guess the connection between uh, imperialism and I don't know global corporations, global capitalism? Well, I mean, they're really all in one way or another um, very much identified with the British imperialism and in British colonialism, fully all the four names that you mentioned. Um, it, it, all four had uh, c- carried the British passport, all four uh, companies that you mentioned um really fulfilled what uh, a British colonial policy advocated, whether in China or India or the Middle East. Um, And that has not really stopped. I mean, if you think about it, um, still very large corporations are working in tandem with governments. And I think it's hard to see how these you know, large corporations would work against a government um, irrelevant of its policy. I mean, and and you see it, you have seen it throughout the 20th century in so many instances, and I guess in the 21st century also. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Joseph Sassoon, author of The Sassoons, The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire. Joseph, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what do you think the next project might be? Um, you can buy it on Amazon. I understand uh, good bookshops, whether in Hong Kong or Shanghai or different places are selling it. But Amazon definitely is, is the easiest uh, way to get it. I haven't really decided on my next project. There are a few ideas um, uh, in in my head, but I have been so busy because the 
non-US edition was launched a few months ago, and then the US edition has been launched only a month ago. I have been twice to New York, three events in DC, Boston, uh, Chicago, um, and plus quite a number of Zooms and, and, and virtual talks and podcasts. So I'm trying to enjoy it as much as I can after a lot of work on this book. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Jan Jamil Kochai, author of The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories. But before then, Joseph, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me.